Uh, let's keep our country in prayer. There's some stuff going on. We don't know what it all's about, but it's stirring. Let's just stay in prayer. You know, we go to sleep at night. We wake up in the morning. Um, and unless, you know, we're tuned into some news that's usually a day late and a dollar short, we're not, we're not always aware that there's things going on and people in harm's way and doing things. So continue to pray and continue to pray uh, for our leadership. How many of you know that the Lord never granted us the opportunity to decide which leadership and which leadership we don't pray for? How many of you know that? How many of you know that we're required by Scripture to pray for all leadership? Because the Lord says that He puts them in place for whatever His reasons are, which is a good segue into uh, today's message, which continues on in part seven of, uh, actually part seven of the new creation, walk the talk on the wild side of new creation living. And this one I called uh, after something that Bob Jones, how many of you know who Bob Jones was? Well, Bob Jones made this statement. I remembered it from a while back and dug it back out. He said that the door of opportunity swings on the hinge of opposition. The door of opportunity swings on the hinge of opposition. We are those who understand that it is not easy for us to stand against opposition. Uh, as an intro, at some point in our lives, if you haven't already, and I believe you have, uh, I can see battle scars on most of you, and I'm sure you can see them on me. We come wounded. We come having to pick ourselves back up. We come through stories and testimonies. At some point in our lives, everybody faces opposition. Is that not true? Anybody in here who has not, um, we want to just dissect you and figure out what you're all about because you are a strange being. You can face opposition in just about any part of your life. Is that not correct? Uh, it could be at work, at school, at home, in families. How about at church? How about on the athletic field? How about in social relationships? Uh, how about just in the spiritual opposition, which is sometimes the most intense and the hardest to figure out because we don't see it clearly? And the Word tells us, unlike what some would want to convince you, that followers of Jesus are going to face opposition. Just because we come in and we're saved by the blood of the Lamb doesn't mean that our life is all of a sudden turned around to the point that we're never going to face opposition. In fact, in my life, let me speak to me for a moment, I have learned that as the Lord's call and demand and opportunity turns up on me, opposition turns up on me. And at first, it was a point where I didn't understand it. I thought it was unfair. It does seem unfair, but it's a fact of life. It's a fact of spiritual life. And I want to dig into that a little bit this morning. It's our choice. We can walk around discouraged. We can walk around in an attitude of defeat. We can walk around in an attitude of trying to, in some way or another, shield ourselves from those kind of situations. Or we can see the opposition as an opportunity. I want to, to lay a groundwork this morning that builds upon last week's discussion about authority, continuing about authority, but with a specificity about opposition can become opportunity. 
Now, opportunity and opposition, in essence, go together in our spiritual walk. If we learn that and accept that, then we are able to embrace opposition even as we would embrace opportunity. We don't divide it. We don't say, "Uh uh-oh, here's the bad and here's the good. We see all good. We see all good because the Lord says that he's working all good for us at all times. Now, that does not seem proper at all, does it? It almost seems like it could be a new age thought, but it's not new age. New age just steals from new creation that God created. New age is the enemy's counterfeit to try and steal the truths of God. The truth of God is, is that we are never defeated. We are never lost. I want to talk a little bit uh, about opposition a little bit more. First of all, in 1 Corinthians 16, 9. 1 Corinthians 16, 9. Could I ask somebody to uh, turn on that fan back there, please? You all might not know, but it's usually about 15 degrees hotter up here than it is down there. So when you're a little chilly, just add 15 degrees to it, and that's what I'm getting up here. I think because of these lights and the fact we really don't vent this upstairs. But thank you. So that fan just on low does a wonderful job for me. I appreciate it. I want to use this tool that I have a little bit to emphasize a few things. 1 Corinthians 16, 9 says, For a great and effective door is open to me, and there are many adversaries. This is Paul talking about his opportunity to the letter of the Corinthians, the first one, to do things, mighty things, for God. A door has opened for him. And he realizes that when that door is open, that there are many adversaries. There's a great opposition to what God has called him to do. How many of you know that every step that we know about that's told to us and printed to us in the report of Paul just is one opposition after another? And the same thing with Jesus, isn't it? Jesus many times had to melt into the crowd to disappear before they could stone him or kill him or take him before his time. On his way to the cross for the greatest victory of all was nothing but pure opposition. It tells us in Scripture that in the garden he sweated great blood, great, great drops of blood so that if, as if it were, it says that he was bleeding out of his pores. Are you trying to see if this works? Let's see. I didn't use it yet, so maybe that's why it didn't work for you. We have not yet had to resist sin to that same point, the Scripture says. It tells us in Hebrews, you have not yet resisted sin unto blood. That's what it's talking about. Christ in the garden, on his way to the cross, it was spiritual opposition. And then, of course, we know it manifested physically as well. We should expect that as Christians and members of the body of Christ, that opposition is part of what we have to endure. I want to talk a little bit about influence. Influence and authority work together. How many of you know that the purpose for Jesus telling us that the Father has given him all authority, and this is in John 5, he says, the Father has put all authority upon me is so that also he would have all influence. And we learn as it goes on that the Father so loved him. And so appreciated what he do that he, what he's done is that he's put everything under his influence. And what does Jesus say? He's done the same thing for us. He's put everything, all of that authority, under our influence. 
Now, opposition is the opposite of influence. Opposition is the opposite of influence. It's the opposite of, of authority. Activating authority to an ultimate desired conclusion is ultimately influence. You can exert influence on something when you have been able to exert authority on something. Without authority, you can't change it at all, whether it's spiritual or other. Some of the synonyms for influence, listen to them for a moment, actuate. Influence requires you to do something. Influence requires for you to activate what? The power of God inside of you, the new creation laws of the kingdom of God that have been given to us and written eternally in heaven, on earth, and in hell. Those laws govern. They are sovereign. So in essence, influence in spiritual realm can be sovereign in Christ. Not only does it activate, it compels. It makes something happen. To compel, you must have, in one way or another, two forces moving. One force, which is you activating, that moves another force that requires you to speak and to activate. This isn't working, so we'll just let it sit. Don't worry about it. To work and activate. Another, another synonym for that is to dispose of. If you have influence, typically we must dispose of something else. What is it? Typically, it's a mindset that doesn't agree with us. It's a situation that contradicts us. It also is a spiritual force that buffets us. So you must dispose. Authority and influence have those qualities. We must draw out what is good of God so that we can decrease what is not of God. That's spiritual influence. Paul said, I operate in my sphere of influence. I don't operate outside of my sphere of influence. So on one end, we understand that operating in the sphere of influence is in the dominion that God has given us. We discussed that last week. That dominion is authority over an order. The order is what God puts in our sphere of influence. Your sphere of influence, as regards a spiritual call, could be in an area of evangelism, in an area of prophetic, certainly in a household, uh, parents over children, certainly in the church, certainly in ministry. Your sphere of influence can be in the workplace that God has given you, but you also are a member of a much greater sphere of influence, and that's called the body of Christ. And the body of Christ has the fullness of Christ there within. So if you are a member of the body of Christ, which you are, if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you all of a sudden are a part of the kingdom sphere of influence that has authority without end. In that place, in that place, you can lead, you can move, you can persuade, you can prompt, you can stir, you can sway, you can urge. That's why Paul, when he was trying to explain in Acts to those that had a Greek philosophical mind, and didn't know him in Acts 17, didn't know the Lord. He said, in him you live and move and have your being. He was saying in that sphere of influence, that's what they wanted. They wanted influence. The whole force of philosophical thought and religious thought is to have influence, correct? But we already have influence. That's why we need to know that we know what we know, as we said last week. We need to really know that we have that influence, and then we need to activate it and move on it. 
Influence is the power to direct the thinking or behavior of others or circumstances. And a lot of times it's direct. It has authority. Influence has authority. It has clout. If you were doing it in a slang, influence is juice. It's got it. It has leverage. It pulls. It sways. It has weight, which is the kabod, the glory of God. Now, let's talk about the opposite of influence. And this begins to expose some of the things of opposition, the, the ways of opposition that we have to overcome. The opposite of influence is to deter. Everything that is said against you when you're set out to do the things of God is to deter you from getting to the place and the plan that God has for you. We already know, as we've said, that his plans and purposes for you are good. But we understand that there's a force of evil that is not good. And it is there to buffet. It is there to deter. It's there to discourage. Discouragement is the weapon of the enemy who tries to get us to walk away or give up or at the very least to be less effective in the ways that we do the things of God. I remember somebody telling me once, when the price had gotten pretty heavy. And my wife and I, we were there at one point in our own lives, in our own ministry. And this person said to me, you know, I am tired of the warfare. I'm wore out. I'm weary. I don't sleep at night because I'm constantly in warfare. I'm waiting in the morning to see what new battle comes my way. In the middle of the day, just when I think I'm getting control of something in my life, something else comes the way. Now, we don't want to be those who declare that and confess that and internalize that, but how about if we're just honest with ourselves that there are times we begin to feel that way. There are times when we begin to say, this battle is wearing me down. And we understand in Scripture, Jesus even asked his disciples in the garden, can you stay awake and pray with me just for a little while? He needed some support. He needed some help. And they all fell asleep. And he said, my hour is upon me. And we know that angels came to minister him just to give him enough strength in that hour, in that moment, to be able to finish his assignment and fulfill it. You know, there's something said about people that will stand together with people and pray. It means a lot to me when some of you say to me, Pastor, I was praying for you. That means a whole lot for me. It doesn't matter if you know what you were praying for or why you were called to prayer for me. And I hope it would mean a lot to you when the Lord tells me to pray for some of you. This morning, Sonny and I usually get together very early. We're the first ones in here. I have the pleasure of picking him up on the way. And we were sharing this morning, and he was sharing some things that went on. And I shared with him about something the Lord had put my heart about on somebody. And uh, I said to him that I saw this person at an at a, at a, at a intersection, and on one hand, she was looking to the left, and the left had a lot of glitz, it had a lot of lights, it was like entertainment. But yet, it seemed to be somewhat spiritual, but it had a, a gray light to it, it wasn't a bright light. But yet, I heard the right things, I saw some of the right things, but the environment, the environment was Hued. It was great over. And I could tell as I asked the Lord, what is that? What I received back is, he said, that's superficial, superficial Christianity. It's Christianity that hasn't gone deep. It's Christianity that hears the word, has read the word, but doesn't have intimacy with me. It doesn't know the power of the authority. And then as I looked to the right, I saw bright, 
light and I could discern and see. And in it, it went deep, very deep and very high and very broad. And I couldn't see the end of what, was, uh, what, uh, of what the potential was to the right. And I didn't even have to ask the Lord what that was. I said, Lord, that's authority. That's walking in authority. That's walking in power. That's walking in victory. Lord, I prayed for that person and I said, Lord, let them make the decision. They're at a fork in the road to pursue the power. You see, religion can become very enticing. And you notice that I'm not separating Christianity that takes a religious form from religion that some of us think is so obvious. Because to me, a Christianity that takes a religious form is more dangerous than a religion that's obvious. I'll give you an example why. Very difficult uh, when somebody is embedded in a religion and is so orthodox about it, so fundamental about it, to begin to persuade them or even talk to them about the things of God that are more in the spirit, spiritual realm, less in the religious realm. I had that experience myself. Coming out of the temple, I may as, it was talking to clanging bells to try and talk to the rabbi or to those who were embedded in the Torah and were embedded in the rituals and the traditions of Judaism. And even in Israel and in, in circumstances that I've been put into, I find that somebody who's very religious is very difficult to even sit down and talk with because the full weight of tradition, of ritual, of the knowledge that lacks the understanding is working against you. The opposition is so strong. But yet, isn't it interesting? And the same thing, by the way, with Muslims. Muslims who are very adamant about their faith or Hindus or Buddhists, you know, they're very adamant about their faith. They're practicing it. They just don't call themselves a Buddhist or a Hindi or a Muslim or a Jew because their parents or grandparents were. They're actually practicing it. They're believing it. They're working it. Same in any denomination sometimes. We see that we are unable, people are unable to move beyond the point of their religious belief because it's become so embedded into them. They don't know any other way that they can relate to it. I've, I've dealt with many Muslims and very rarely except for the supernatural miracle power of God, can you sit and talk about the word of God in that instance? There's a blind, there's something that is, is masking it completely. But interesting thing enough for beloved Israel right now, which is just under 10 million inhabitants now, and out of those 10 million inhabitants, it's only about 350,000 that they call Christians. And out of that group, it's about six and a half million, maybe seven, that they say are Israelite Jews, and the rest of them are Arabs, albeit whatever they are, whatever they come from, wherever they call themselves. And out of that sliver of Jews that are called Israelites, a great majority today are not practicing an orthodox Judaism. They've sort of been weaned off of it because of the society, because of serving in the military. For whatever the reasons are, they still hold the holidays. They love the holidays. They hold the holidays just like Christians here celebrate Christmas. But the whole rest of the year, it's a different story. So they hold the holidays. But what you find out is that when you begin to talk to them about the things of God simply, not in a religious fashion, there's a spirit that's opened up to it because they are no longer chained 
to those, that religious knowledge. They have the culture. They have their tradition. If you ask them what they are, they'll tell you, I'm a Jew. I don't believe, I don't think I believe in Jesus. But then at the same time, they'll begin to make an excuse and say, but you know what? It's okay. Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. I remember what Mayor Teddy Colick once said. I was a young buck. My wife and I had just discovered uh, Messianism in Israel. We had gone in and we didn't have a clue what we were going to find. We came through Egypt first. We were tattered, broken, wounded. How would you like to just get married to this crazy guy? And, you, and, 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 and he tells his wife, the Lord is calling us to go to Israel. We don't have a dime between us. We try to fund the money. I also tell her that he's also telling us to go on the radio. We don't have the money for the first deposit on it. But bless her heart, she was faithful enough to go along with it. Off we go. And to make things worse, I'm going with gangrene in my leg. And they're telling us that if I go, I'll probably lose my leg. And then after all of that, I tell her, and the Lord says, we can't go to Israel till first we go to Egypt. We didn't have any money to go to Egypt. We didn't have anything. We landed in the airport in Egypt, and we got out, and the first thing I began to do was pray for somebody. I saw somebody. I was naive. I didn't understand that this Muslim nation had laws for proselytizing and what I was doing and could arrest me. I really didn't care. I began to pray for them. My leg was all bandaged and pus was oozing out of five holes that were in my leg. Bored in deep, an inch, inch and a half, gauze being pushed into them. Heavy medications. Got off the airplane, began to pray for one person. Lo and behold, God healed this Muslim right on the spot. He began to utter out, man of God, man of God in Arabic, I guess. I don't know what it meant, but all of a sudden people began to come. They were attracted by the miracle. That's what Jesus does. That's why we're never defeated. That's why we never lose because Jesus has your back. He has a whole pouch full of miracles just waiting for you. And a lot of them have your name on it. And he's able to insert and move them at any point in your life that he needs to, that we call out and activate. We may not see it at the moment. We may not understand it. But if we have the faith to activate and move, Jesus must, by his name, meet you in that place. That's a law that he has written into the kingdom from the Father to him. It's a transference of authority. Authority from the Father to the Son and to you as a member of the body of Christ. And pretty soon with my new bride and me sweating and agony and pain and, and pus coming out of my leg, someone else comes up to be prayed and I pray for him and someone else. Then I get activated. I begin to preach. I begin to preach and evangelize the simple message of Jesus Christ. Some get it, some don't get it. The policeman's watching me. Another policeman joins him. A crowd comes, and pretty soon we're having church in the middle of the Egyptian Cairo airport. And I don't care anymore because God is moving mightily. And don't you know the policeman comes for prayer, and the policeman gets healed. And after that's all said and done, a Muslim guide comes, and he says, I want to guide and take you wherever you want to go in Egypt. And my wife and I look, we start laughing. I say, I don't have any money. I can't afford you. We don't even know what we're going to do now. We're here. We had a ticket to get on a train and go somewhere. We don't know what's going on. He said, no, man of God, I want to honor you. Let me be your guide. And for the next nine, 10 days, that man was by our side. And God healed him and delivered his whole family. And in their house, we led them to Jesus Christ. 
I was wounded. I was defeated. The world said, don't go. You'll stumble. You'll lose your leg. And I didn't say, oh, if I have to lose my leg for God, that's what I'll do. I said, no, 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 no. I'm not going to lose my leg. God's going to heal my leg. I'm not worried about it. I could have just taken that religious attitude. Oh, poor me. I'm going to suffer for Jesus Christ. No, 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 no. I'm going to go for Jesus Christ. And we were new in the Lord. We weren't that long in him. And this was really our first outreach in the world. And we went through Egypt to get to Israel. But when we got there, what I found out is that those weren't religious, had open hearts. They had open hearts. So beloved, what we need to overcome many times, because we've been in the Lord for a while, or we've been trained a different way, or we've come out of some other background, right? I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm like a mutt. I've been mixed up in all kinds of different things. I, I went to a Catholic high school. They, they came and recruited me to play sports. I wasn't Catholic. And, and I was in the temple, and then I pursued it as an Orthodox and a rabbinical student. And, and I didn't know what I was doing there either. And then I got a degree in philosophy and religion. That really confused me. And I pursued all kinds of things. And I got into new creation humanism for a while because it seemed right. And I remember walking around just to see how people would react, especially nuns that had me at earth. And I'd tell them I'm an atheist now. I was, I've been there. I've seen it. And let me tell you something. Some of the hardest things to do is to shake it loose. And now I've learned after a few years in the Lord... Just a few, Doc, maybe a few more than I want to admit. After a few years in the Lord, some of the hardest things for me to overcome was what became part of my foundation that I thought was what I needed to hold on because it was working at the time or somebody else gave it to me or it seemed to be the move in the body of Christ and I found out it was hard to shake. I found out that the body of Christ keeps moving. The kingdom of God is violent. It's active. It's alive. It's not the same as it was yesterday. Yes, God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, but the environment that we live in is not. And what God appoints the body of Christ to do today is different than everything that the body of Christ did a couple thousand years ago. A couple thousand years ago, Paul had to walk and travel and, and jump on a ship and try to get wherever he had to go and wanted to be. But us, we don't even have to go to places anymore to be effective in a sphere of influence. We just have to be available. We just have to have the technology and the time and the ability to do it. And sometimes it works against us. How many of you could admit that some of the hardest things to shake were the things that were working for you some of you 50 years ago, some of you 40, some of you 30, some of you 20, some five, some one. The moves of God that you, some people still seem stuck in. You know, let me give you an example of one. And it's okay. I'm all about joy and laughter. Laughter's fun. I love to laugh. I love to hear my wife laugh. Her laugh makes me giggle. She laughs at things I don't laugh about, but I laugh because she laughs. If there's an animal in a commercial, my wife laughs. And I, I look to see an animal in a commercial because I like to hear her laugh. And I laugh with her, not because the animals seem funny, but because she makes me laugh. But there are people today that feel in every service there needs to be a laughing interruption. You have to start laughing. If you're not laughing, something's wrong. The Spirit of God isn't manifesting in you. Or if people are praying for you, if you're not slain in the Spirit, something's wrong with you. You really aren't holy enough or you, you need your buttons changed around. Come on. Or how about the prosperity thing? Huh? How about the, I mean, the prosperity thing's a good thing. I like it, but it's not all there is. 
Or how about just the faith movement? The faith movement's wonderful, but it's not all there is. And how about just grace? Grace, we all need more grace. Grace, 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 but it's not all there is. God has a full buffet. He's got a cafeteria of who he is that's abundant for us. Some of these words related to the opposite of influence, hinder, impede, inhibit, prevent, restrain, hold back. And here's some antonyms for influence. Listen to these. Helplessness, impotence, impotency, powerlessness, weakness. So the vocabulary that the enemy of your soul and of your life uses to throw at you comes from that. When you begin to stand up for the things of God, be assured that there's a force and power that's going to work against you. And don't think that if you don't do something for God, it will relinquish. It will just lull you to sleep until it can devour you. There's no such thing as a soul that the devil wants to give away. And the forces of the world are contrary to the things that God has done for us. I'd like to talk to us for a moment about an age-old story. It's history. It's a testimony. It's one you know very well. It's one that even today as we tell it still has some meaning to us. And as we really get into it, we can understand even more that it does more than we ever thought it could do. Let's turn to John chapter 11, starting in verse 1. I'm not going to read all of the story of Lazarus, the history of Lazarus. It's a testimony. Yes, it's a story, but it's the same story as World War II. There are facts, there are truth. So the story of World War II is real. The story of Lazarus is real. It's not something that is fiction. And as we read it, it says, a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. Let me just give you a quick little Bible teaching with it. Lazarus was wealthy. Lazarus lived in Bethany, which was only a little distance away from Jerusalem. It was a place that Jesus liked to go to. It was a place where he could lay his head down and rest a little bit and let go of his defenses, and they would keep him. This is the, the brother of Martha and Mary, Martha the one who anointed his feet and rubbed them with her hair. And it says that the town of Mary and her sister Martha, go with me quickly, please. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord, who had flagrant oil and fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore the sisters sent to the Lord, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Stop a moment. There was an intimate relationship between Jesus and Lazarus. They were bows. They were friends. Jesus and Lazarus were more than just somebody that he was listening to Jesus, he was the disciple of Jesus. He was beyond that. There was an intimacy. It infers to us that Lazarus was a place where Jesus could let all of his guard down and feel comfortable and safe. And he didn't have too many places like that, not even his old home. Next verse. When Jesus heard that, he said, this sickness isn't unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Next verse. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. That was unquestionable. So when he heard that he was sick, he picked up all of his stuff. He grabbed his fastest horse. He turned the key, put all eight cylinders on, and ran to him. 
with a bucket full of pills and miracles and medicines. It says no. He did nothing. He stayed two more days in the same place where he was at. Next. Then after he said to the disciples, now let's go to Judea again. Listen to how they answered. The disciples said, Rabbi, the Jews, they want to kill you. Are you going to go there now? Right now? And what does he say? Jesus answered and said, Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. Stop right there. If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. He was being, in one end, ironic. What he was saying is, people think they see where they're going because the world is showing them the way, and they don't think they stumble. Watch how he answers it next. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. The light is not in him. Notice the contrast. The light of the world is outside. The light of the Christ in the dark is in we must see, we must discern. We have to have spiritual eyes. We have to have a knowledge that's not based on empiricism, not on our emotions, not on what we see, not what we feel, not what we even think unless it's the mind of Christ because we must think through and in Him. Next verse. These things He said and after that He said to them, Our Fred Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Keep going, please. Then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. However, Jesus spoke of death, but they thought he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. Go on. Then Jesus said to them plainly, he's dead. He's dead. He's dead. This isn't the kind of miracle you thought you saw before. Lazarus is dead. Death has won. Got your friend. Got my friend. Next. And I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there. Hmm. Opposition. How many of us have problems and we want Jesus there right now? How many of us say, Jesus, you could do this. Do this, do this right now. Why do I have to go through this? Why does my beloved have to go through this? Why am I suffering this when Jesus... You could just wave your hand and say it, and it's gone. And Jesus says, I'm glad for your sake that I'm not there right now. Because you need to believe. I want to increase your faith. I want to use you and resurrect you and out of you something that has consequences in the kingdom and of God. This isn't all about me. It isn't all about you. We're a body. We're a kingdom. And so the things that God does and when he does and how he does them, they're maybe not within our time and most of the time aren't. In fact, in my life, almost all the time aren't. I think if God did something on the moment that I asked, I would be so shocked that maybe my faith would decrease instead of increase. I don't know. Nevertheless, let's go to him. And I'm glad for your sakes. The next verse. Then Thomas said, let us also go that we may die with him. Thomas, he was convinced if Jesus went to Judea because they were out to get him, they were going to all die. So he emboldens himself and let's go and let's die with him. 
Jesus gets to the tomb. He calls forth Lazarus from the realm of the dead. And he releases this statement. We know it. This is a cornerstone of our faith, isn't it? He says, I am the resurrection and the life. And basically, he says, I have the power to raise Lazarus from the dead. And in so, he lets us know that he is the key to eternity with God. I am the resurrection and the life. So the lesson that we learn is that when God seems to be doing nothing, he probably is doing so much more than we could possibly imagine. It might be in a tomb, it might be waiting to come out, but it has to do with a code that's so much deeper than just our superficial faith that says he's the resurrection and the life. It's actually internalizing him as life. Let me dig deeper into that a moment. It's internalizing him as life. It's not just about the resurrection of the dead. In fact, Mary says that. I know that we'll all resurrect when we're dead. I have enough faith to believe in what the Jews believe that there's the resurrection of the dead. Some of the Jews believed. Jesus said, no, no, you're not getting it. I am the resurrection and the life. It's not just about the resurrection of the dead. It's about every consequence of those who believe in me. If they believe in me, everything, everything has the full capacity to be alive, to come to life. Now let's go back and talk about those synonyms and, uh, and, and antonyms. Defeated, victorious. Not moving, activated. Influenced, coaxed away. We could go on and on. Every one of those problems, every one of those issues that is set against you must conform to the eternal law of Jesus Christ, that he's the resurrection and the life. And it's for life more abundantly, isn't it? Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 13. Ephesians 4, 11 through 13. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service. Note, why? To equip his people for works of service. Service to who? Service to God. What kind of works? Good works in the kingdom of God. To equip, to be able to be perfected, to grow, so that the body of Christ may be built up until, 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 we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. If I had this, I would show you a different diagram. So let me try to visualize it with you. Building up the body of Christ. The body of Christ, if that is what he's telling us, it means that nobody in the body of Christ has arrived at the level they're called to be at. And he says, until, until we all reach the unity in faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature. He wasn't saying that point would come here on earth before he came back. There are some that teach that. I went once to an apostles' conference in Venezuela, and that was the whole theme. And they were just talking, and it was all religious. There was no power. 
about maturing to the unity in faith. And my, my, I left after two days. My head was hurting me. And I said, no power. There's no power here. They're coming at it as theologians. They're coming at it as religionists. They're coming at it, and none of this is ever going to work. Because, you see, they don't see beyond the word that they're seeing. They don't see the revelation in that word. The revelation in that word is until each one of us individually comes to the unity of the faith. If the body of Christ is so small that only a few of us come to unity, then Jesus' body is too small, isn't it? And then we can become arrogant and think that we're extreme and unique according to everybody else. But the body of Christ teaches us that everybody's diverse and everybody's different. And people may come this way and they may come this way and they may activate in this and activate in that, but they're all loved by Christ. And God gave his only begotten son that whomsoever shall call on his name shall be saved. But what it does tell us is that we will continue to receive from God until we reach that full measure, which in my own life, I believe as Paul said, I act as if I've never apprehended. I just keep reaching forward. I keep going for more. I keep reaching out to go upward and onward. Not as if I've apprehended, but that I am apprehending. And he says, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Let's talk about what the blessing of that is. Within the body of Christ, is the capacity of the full measure of Christ. Think about that a moment. Within the body of Christ. How many of you can say right now, I'm in the body of Christ? Amen. Almost every hand's up. A few of you in the back, are you just, just wave to me. There you are. Okay. I, okay, I see you, Walt. Thank you. I'm going to ask you again. How many of you say that I'm in the body of Christ? Keep your hand up. I declare in Jesus' name, that your eyes will open up and you'll begin to discern and see the full measure of what Christ has for you within the body. His capacity, His superabundance in all things, pressed down, never, never defeated, never overcome, never in despair, understanding and knowing that Christ has more for you than anything in the world can have against you. If you agree in that, say, in Jesus' name, amen. That is the beauty of the revelation of the full measure of the body of Christ. There's a super abundance in it. And in it we understand that we are His workmanship. Ephesians 2.10. You are His workmanship. And it says you're created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works. For good works. For good works. We have had so much teaching about grace as if we're afraid to say the word works because then we're legalistic. Well, let me say something to you. Faith without works is dead. Dead faith cannot move a mountain. Dead faith just stands where it is. It doesn't mean you're not saved. It doesn't mean God doesn't believe, love you anymore. It doesn't mean that you can't operate in the gifts of God. What it means is you're not. And it means I'm not. I can be honest with you. I'm feeling a tug and a pull on me that is strong. I'm feeling a tug and pull on me that's saying, son, you need to do more. You need to get out more. You need to go where I've told you to go. It's strong on me right now. I ask you to pray for me with it because it's not about me wanting to do good works because I like to do good works. It's because that's what God has called us to do. It's what he equips us with. It's why we are taught. It's why. 
Christ says you have the capacity for the full measure. Jesus said, I've come to give you life and life more abundantly. Now let's go back. What kind of life? Resurrection life. Life that takes everything and recreates it. Life that will not accept defeat. Life that will not accept anything that is less than the perfection of God. That's the kind of life Jesus Christ gives us. Not in the great by and by, but in the present now. All things have passed away. New things are new. You're a new creation being. You talk different. You walk different if you choose to. We must choose to. Our words are weapons. These words have authority. These words take dominion. These words speak light into darkness. These words speak to any mountain and tell it to remove itself. Most people don't put itself on the end of it. Remove itself. Go! Go. Be gone. In the name of Jesus. And so, as we dig in, and we learn a little bit more about what he means by life abundantly. It literally interprets, as you will, beyond measure. It literally interprets supra measure, superior measure, something that is super abundant. Everybody likes to grab onto the supernatural. That ain't new. E.W. Kenyon had that revelation in 1880. 1890, he coined it. It's just nobody gives him credit for it. Supernatural's been around forever. It's not that we hold on to the supernatural. We hold on to the full revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is everything that we need. And it's not a fad. And it's not a movement. It's who he is. In Christ in you, you can do all things. And it also says that he strengthens you in your weakness. Oh my God. There's something about the character, the quality, the fiber of resurrection life that when you come in beat up, tattered, broken, perplexed, wounded, despaired, discouraged, scratching to get back, there's something that is almost like it's, it's intravenous spiritually. He connects, he hooks you up, and he gives you strength. He strengthens the weak. Do you know... The one thing that, 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 that helped me to learn to love Jesus, when I came to Jesus, I didn't love him. I didn't even love the Father. I was afraid of the Father. I'm being honest. I was afraid. I came in fear. I didn't come in love. And I didn't even come expecting him to make everything go away. I just expected that he wasn't going to kill me. That's how I came to him. And I didn't know what it meant to love Jesus. In fact, I was a little upset about things. I thought about, why did I have to go through all this for so many years and you didn't show me who you were back then? Why did we have to get to this point now? I mean, being honest, you can lie to God if you want. He knows just because you don't say it, what's in your heart. Why did this happen to me? Why did that happen to me? Why didn't you show me this? Why didn't you show me that? And so, you know, like the prodigal son, except I didn't have anything, I was busted broke. I said, you know what? I'm done serving God for a while. I'm done. This ain't working. I see these Christians, they're joyous, and that was during the laughing movement. <laughs> they're all laughing, and I'm like, I want to pull their hair out. I'm still stuck in legalism. I'm thinking, 
I got to do this. I got to do this. But they're saying you don't have to do anything. And they're not doing anything, but I got to do this. And I got to do that. And I got all confused. So I said, you know what? I'm done with this for a while. I'm going to go back in the world. At least when I go with the world, I hit a bar. Hey, kumbaya. They don't want anything. I don't want anything. We're living for the night. I did that. About six months. There are two old ladies. One Jewish, one Gentile. I helped establish the first Messianic congregation. And then I purposefully backslid. Purposefully. With purpose, I backslid. And I told people, don't follow me. I know I'm not right in God. I don't care right now. I don't care. I'm done. I'm done. I'm done with this. I'm done with it. Y'all a bunch of phonies is what I was saying. I see what's going on in the backlight and you all just a bunch of phonies. I got to find him for myself. This isn't right. But you know what got me? Those two ladies wouldn't let go of me. Oh, they get me so mad. I'd be coming off a binge. They'd be scratching at my door. Shabbat, and they're scratching at my door. Frank, Frank, we came to get you. Frank, Frank. I would know the time they were coming. I'd turn all my curtains down and hide so they couldn't see me. They'd pull their car in, and I'd run out the back door and go up to the neighborhood. One day, finally, six months, I opened the door. I said, yes, Bess. Frank. God still loves you. I said, really? He could still love me? Yes, just come with us. Yeah. I get a free meal. Let's go. <laughs> Sitting there in that little congregation that I helped find, some old Jewish guy gets up and he begins to thank God that this place was founded so that he could see eternal life all of a sudden it wasn't about me it was about him I cried I wept on the floor I went to the last seat in the last row crumpled my head in my hands bawling like a baby I said Lord how could you forgive me again and I heard these words my son, I died for you. That's when I learned the love of Christ. Funny thing, I didn't have to go back to go. He just picked me up right where I was and we got going again. The next Friday night I preached in that little temple I helped to find. And I preached about the grace of God. How precious is the grace of God. Took me two years after that to untangle the law and the grace. I had so much law in me, so much legalism. Beloved, you are an awesome weapon of God. You have the capacity for anything and everything. Do not allow the forces of the world do not allow the opposition of the evil one. Do not allow the condemnation of your own flesh upon yourself to get in the way of who you are. If you've accepted Christ, and it doesn't matter if you fell away, take it from me. 
All you have to say is, Lord, forgive me, here I am. And guess what? He doesn't give you a whole bunch of things to do to get right with him. He says to you what I'm going to say to you. I already knew you were going to slip. I already knew you were going to stumble. I already knew this was going to happen to you. I already took it on the cross. It's finished. It's over with. Come back, my dear one. I love you. I love you with all my heart. You're home. And everything that I have, everything I am, is yours. That's authority. That's dominion. With every head bowed and every eye closed here, and for those of you who are online with us, if you say, Pastor, I've never accepted Christ as my Lord, or if I did, I just went through the motions because it seemed like what I should do at the time, or you know what, I've, I've stumbled some. I've stumbled some, and I just want to reaffirm myself to Christ right now under this anointing, under this moment of God. I want to be totally set free that there's nothing that can stop me or get in my way or hinder me or hold me down, and that I can pick up the gifts God has given me and just move on with them now. In Jesus' name, every head bowed, every eye closed. If that's you, I just want you to put your hand up. I'm not going to call you forward. I see you. 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 Those online, the Lord sees you. You may put your hands down. I'd like every one of us to say this prayer together. You can lift your heads up, open your eyes, keep them closed, do whatever you want. Just don't get religious on me. Father, I believe in God. I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God. And I thank you, Lord, that you take me just as I am. I thank you, Jesus, that you've already covered all of, all of me in the blood. With me, there's no history, only future because of who you are. Forgive me. Father, forgive me. Release me. Free me in Jesus Christ. And I pray, Jesus, that you come stronger in my life. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you guide my steps, that you provoke my conscience, that you lead me not into temptation, that you deliver me from evil, and that you help me to change patterns and ways, even relationships. And I bless you, Lord. I love you, and I want to love you more. Use me, Lord. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.